Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello, uh, folks. Uh, welcome to another season of Wisdom of Friends. I'm your host, Cal Ross. And today I'm really excited to be introducing you to a dear friend of mine. His name is Greg Voisin. Greg is a creator and host of Inside Personal Growth and is an author, creative consultant, and a thought leader in the human potential movement. Greg's professional journey began with a career in insurance sales and financial planning, during which he found himself coaching clients to feel emotionally secure, making major life investments. His professional mission is to inspire, insight, and innovate that facilitates breakthroughs in the individual and collective consciousness. Friends, this is a fascinating episode where we talk about uh, blending spirituality with business and his uh, new book, which is Hacking the Gap, a journey from intuition to innovation and beyond. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, let's welcome the one and only Greg Voisin. Good morning, Greg. Uh, welcome to uh, another season of uh, Wisdom of Friends show. I'm really excited that you took the time to be on this program. And let me start off with my first impressions of you. We first met at the Hay House Conference in San Diego almost 10 years ago. And that was a time when my when I had uh, published my book and you had this uh, incredible podcast. And so I was the guest on your podcast back then. And what a uh, incredible circularity here that uh, now I've got a podcast and you got a book launch and uh, and I'm so glad that uh, you're on the show. So really excited and delighted to, uh, you know, uh, talk to you more about the book and your journey up until this point. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Cal. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to speaking with uh, your listeners. Excellent. So one of the ways, Greg, uh, we start off our show is by asking our guest a very simple yet profound question, and that is, what is your favorite quote or philosophy that you live by, and how have you applied it to your life? Well, Cal, that's really a, an excellent question, and thanks for asking. And I think that my, one of my favorite quotes, and it's in my book, uh, and it's around developing intuition and it's by Albert Einstein. I think it's one of those quotes that many listeners will probably never have heard that it came from Einstein. But he said, the intuitive mind is a sacred gift and the rational mind is a faithful servant. Um, we've created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. And the reason I like that quote so much, Cal, is we do live in a society today where people have, in my estimation, sped up so fast at what they're doing, um, are not taking the time that's really required to tune in to that intuition, um, to find that side of themselves that helps them be more creative, that helps them to invent new products or ideas or whatever. Even though we're flooded with these things in our, in our world, um, we have so many people that will tell me they're so frustrated around that area that they're stuck, right? Mm-hmm. 
Now, that is great. And I really uh, like uh, how you have uh, distinguished between the intuitive mind and the intellectual mind. And I think, you know, most of the insights and creativity that uh, happens uh, in today's uh, business world or the creative world, I mean, it definitely is the art of tapping into the spiritual mind, if you will. And I really like that. It resonates with me very much. Now, the other thing I'm curious about, uh, Greg, is what did your parents do and how did that shape your life? In other words, where did you grow up and how would you describe your childhood? Well, I originally was born in St. Louis, Missouri, and we moved to a little city outside of uh, Los Angeles, California, called Claremont, where the Claremont Colleges are um, in the early 60s. And, you know, obviously my recollection goes back to the days of living in St. Louis and playing in the snow and being a kid and all that. But I was seven years old when I transplanted to California. So I do consider myself a native of this state. Um, I'm now 63 years old, so I've been here long enough, I think, to call myself a native. Um, that What my father did is he came to Claremont to actually follow my uncle, who actually lived out here and had a construction company. And my father actually initially started working um, for my uncle, and so did my mother, actually. My mother was doing sales of these homes they were building because they were building um, what would be considered in today's world the term tracked home. Um, and these houses in the 60s, um, believe it or not, in, in that area, um, they would build uh, 20 of them at a time, sometimes 30 of them at a time. And my father would help build them. Uh, my uncle was the kind of business side of things. My dad was the supervisor. And then my mom would sell them. And they had kind of a, a great little thing going. Back then, those houses were selling for twenty-two dollars to $27,500. Um, so, you know, today you couldn't even buy a, uh, <laughs> a little a mobile home for that, right? <laughs> but but uh, that's that's what was happening then, and that's what drew my parents to leave uh, the Midwest and actually come out here to California. Subsequently, uh, my father got the entrepreneurial urge. I think he always had it, and he told my uncle that he was going to quit because he had a passion for actually doing the landscaping on the houses. And he started a landscaping company. And in essence, my uncle hired him. And then my father broke out and did his own thing where he was landscaping all the houses in the neighborhood that would go up. And the company grew and grew and grew. And he ultimately ended up with about 20 employees working all throughout the basin um, and then transplanted the company down here to San Diego. And when uh, they transplanted the company to San Diego in the early 70s, obviously I was still relatively young then, I moved. Um, I was in high school then, and my mom decided to start a plant business uh, in Solana Beach, California. And she also started a maintenance company, which was actually not an outdoor maintenance. It was indoor maintenance. And mm. she started that company after um, my father died very young. He died at 53 years old. And my mother didn't know exactly what she was going to do. And she was always good at 
cleaning. So she ended up as an entrepreneur as well, uh, developing a company. And I wouldn't actually say my parents were kind of forced entrepreneurs, but both of them were quite hard workers and definitely entrepreneurs. They were probably some of the um, most ingenious, uh, intuitive entrepreneurs around, and I learned a ton from them. Uh, and they were not afraid of risk. Uh, they, they virtually, you know, think about it. They packed up a family, moved to a new state, uh, took on a new job, and then actually started businesses. So um, it, it kind of runs, I think, uh, it, I don't know if it runs in my family because none of my other brothers did, uh, but I certainly have been a serial entrepreneur. No, that is uh, really fascinating. And it sounds like, I mean, they were an incredible influence, including your uncle on your growing up years where you really uh, flamed the passion of starting businesses. And and today, uh, you know, when we look at your profile, I mean, you've accomplished some incredible achievements, being a creative consultant and a thought leader in the human potential movement. You help businesses uh really connect for the greater good and that's your mission in life as well to inspire inside and uh, innovate that facilitates uh, breakthroughs in the collective consciousness so the the question i have for you greg is i know you have this uh book that uh, has just recently come out called hacking the gap a journey from intuition uh, to innovation and beyond the question that i have for you is uh, how did this journey began for you in the sense did you always know that uh, you wanted to be a consultant and uh, helping businesses uh, you know have the profitability as well as the consciousness uh, angle being explored or what, how did that journey start for you uh again another great question it actually i think like a lot of entrepreneurs you you see a need right and you you don't really always know how to fill it Mine certainly didn't start out as an entrepreneur. I, got, I went to uh, SDSU, San Diego State University. I got a degree in uh, business management and finance, um, and I came out of college, and I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, in essence, after that, I got a job with a company of all things, a company called Economics Laboratories, and I, as I say, people, I was schlepping soap. Um, I was going around in a company car selling soap to supermarkets and convenience stores and whatever. That was my that was my first job. And I would come home at night, Cal, and I'd say to my wife that a trained monkey could do what I was doing. Uh, and what I meant by that was, you know, there was nothing exciting about it. it after about, oh, really, it only took me about two months. It actually took me nine months to quit. Uh, then I quit that job and I was looking for a job and my wife and I were, we were saying, well, how are we going to eat? You know, uh, you quit the job. What are you going to do? And I kept looking in the paper and there were all these sales jobs. And I thought, well, I'm a good salesperson. I'm a good marketing person. So I took a job with uh, a small little company called Businessmen's Assurance Company out of Kansas City, Missouri, in that office in San Diego and a minimal finance plan that they put me on, but it was really a draw against commissions. And I'll never forget this because I, I was selling financial services. For the most part, I was selling insurance. They were small little accident plans and uh, helping families protect themselves. And that blossomed. But when I came off of their little finance plan in two years, I remember the manager to this day 
because he was one of the greatest teachers I'd ever had in my life, not only just around sales, but learning how to focus and being responsible and accountable. Um, and he always used to say when I'd walk into the office, uh, what did you do for me today? Meaning, what did you sell? Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, I know that that may sound a bit challenging to some people, but it was his way of, you know, making you accountable, you know, that you weren't wasting your time, that you were out making the calls. And this man happens to be, uh, 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 his daughter is very famous. His name is Grant Benning and his daughter is Annette Benning. And I got trained under a guy who trained his daughter as well to be one of the best actresses around. And he was a Dale Carnegie sales trainer. And so he insisted that I go to Dale Carnegie sales training. Okay. And so the one thing led to another. I became one of the top producers in the insurance industry, selling medical insurance, life insurance, 401k plans, pension programs, built an office. And that was my first entrepreneur activity. Um, so what was I doing? I was helping people organize their finances, their life, save money for the future and protect their families. And in essence, what, what had occurred, there was an organization called the Million Dollar Roundtable. And every time I would go to a meeting and I'd qualify, because you had to qualify, I would hear these amazing speakers um, Leo Bascaglia t- was one that just left an amazing, indelible imprint on me. But hundreds and hundreds of speakers, once a year, we'd go to these five-day events. They'd be all over the uh, country, and you'd meet with these people. And that was pretty much a turning point for me. That was the point that said, okay, this personal growth stuff is not just you know, a mistake, these were the kind of people that were teaching me, and they were some of the best of the best. Wow. And and I, it's, there's something just kind of like there's epiphany here that just uh, happened for me on right now uh, when you shared about the Million Dollar Roundtable Conference. I don't know, Greg, if I've ever mentioned to you, my mother, uh, she was a teacher back in India, and then, you know, when she... Uh, she was introduced to the business of insurance and life insurance and uh, sales at that point. And then within the first couple of years, she qualified for the Million Dollar Roundtable Conference. Yeah, me too. And then, uh, you know, and she did that three years in a row. And then she came in, uh, she came to the U.S. for a conference. I believe it was uh, 91, 92. I think it was in Chicago and the next year in Boston. And and I think that journey that she that she took from her teaching career to being one of the top insurance sales agents in the country, that inspired all of us in the family to really start being ambitious and thinking big and thinking outside the box. And I think you're absolutely right uh, about, uh, you know, the success in life is uh, also directly related to your personal development and personal growth. Now, this is fascinating. So the other thing also I'm curious about, Greg, is that you have this podcast that you've been interviewing. Now you're on the 600 episodes. Is that correct? 660 episodes or something? Yep, 660. You're actually right. Yeah, that's fine. And I've been listening to your episodes for quite some time now. And so my question to you, and this is a question that we often get from our audience, and that is, how does one go about finding their calling? How does one go about finding their purpose in life, be it a business journey, be it, uh, 
you know, philanthropy or whatever that might be, what has been your experience or what suggestions would you have for someone who might be looking to find their calling? I wrote in it, I wrote about it to a certain degree in my book. And I, and I think if people pick up on the subtlety of what I was speaking about in hacking the gap, a journey from intuition to innovation beyond, you'll pick this up. And that is, you know, we have this intuitive mind, we have this sixth sense, but we don't get in touch with it as frequently as we should. But the subconscious mind is got this treasure trove, Cal, of all of the records that have occurred in our lives. All of the events are there. All of the learnings are there. All of the classes we went to, the professors we listened to, the, the teachers in school, and all the wonderful learnings that we've had, they're there. Now, do we recall them frequently? No. But do they, are they the makeup or are they the blueprint of who we are? Most definitely. And so what happens is, I believe, when you find a calling, uh, you have an awakening uh, to who really you're supposed to be. None of it happens, in my estimation, this is Greg Boyson talking, it just doesn't happen one day and you wake up. Actually, the intuition works and it gives you little pieces at a time. You don't get intuition isn't just like the, usually this big download. It's little pieces of a download that ultimately end up helping you put your puzzle together, right? Mm-hmm. And so over time, you will explore. You will find, huh, that didn't work. This didn't work. That isn't what I like. This is what I like, right? And you'll start to see more of what you like, what you're more proficient at, what you have good skills at, and you'll start doing that, right? And you become much happier when you do it and you take the risk associated with it because what's happening, when you're in touch with the soul, when you're in touch with that intuition, it frequently is telling you that, but your ego mind is saying, oh no, you can't do that, you have to pay the bills. Um, That isn't going to pay the bills. You'll never be able to raise your kids you know, being a musician or being a whatever it is that you want to do, right? And I think you have to go beyond that. You have to test that barrier that's there that we frequently put up on ourselves. It's a self-imposed barrier and there's nothing to say it. I tell people this, your mother did this really well. I did this really well for years and years and years. When you convince people to make a decision about something, you're actually eliminating the cognitive dissonance. The only role that a salesperson has or a marketer or somebody who's helping people go into the future vision of their business is to remove the present moment is here, the future is out here, and that dissonance, meaning that conflict you have between the two that's going, well, I can never reach it. No, your role is to help people move beyond the dissonance so that they can actually uh, manifest what they're attempting to manifest into the future. So all of us has that role for one another. We're helping one another along the way. Really, okay, you live in the now, but don't get attached to the outcomes, but do have some vision for the future, but don't allow that future to cause so much stress on you that you can't function now to get to that level, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's all that we're all doing. This is uh, this is great, and I, this is a perfect segue into the process that you have defined in your book. And uh, 
I thought it was really well laid out for anybody to follow it and apply it to their business, to their personal life. And it's the circle, as I would like to call it, the hacking the gap. And it's got, uh, you know, s- uh, several specific phases, eight. if you will. Yep, eight, eight of them. Eight of them. Eight of them. And mm-hmm. uh, starts with intuition, inside ideas, inspiration, incubation, ignition, innovation, and implementation. So could you give us like a quick overview of what this process is, uh, Greg, and how can one apply it to their life? Maybe perhaps with an example, if you can think think of one. Sure. I, I You know, I started a toy company uh, back in the 90s called Wannabe, and I write about it in the book. And, you know, from an intuition standpoint, I had a great feeling about the fact that the world needed a positive role model doll. Uh, to help kids that were growing up dream to be what they wanted to be. Thus, the, the name of the company was Wannabe, Grow Up and Be What You'd Like to Be. Um, it, it had a coloring book in it, and they could color and dream, and then they'd get a certificate from Wannabe University for whatever occupation it was. And at the time, we couldn't cover all occupations, but we had 12 occupations. We had a teacher we had a doctor, we had a firefighter, we had all these occupations as part of it. And, you know, the insight, the aha moment for that is really about, okay, well, if you can help a generation behind you dream to be what they want to be, that's a very um, on-purpose project. Then this idea gets captured. Okay, so how are we going to make this thing? I mean, this becomes quite a project. Well, one of the things is, is you can capture all the ideas you want. People have ideas that are a dime a dozen, but then they never work. They never do anything with them. You have to be willing to risk to actually move to getting that idea all the way to implementation. But one of the key things is inspiration. You have to know that it's right. Okay? You can't just believe that it's right. You have to know that it's right. And there's a difference in my estimation between what you know is right, and a belief. You know, we used to have a saying at University of Santa Monica where I got the master's degree in spiritual psychology. You don't have to believe everything you think, okay? And I thought it was so appropriate because to me, that all the beliefs, as I write about in the book, can be changed. Now, when you get that inspiration, you then go into incubation of this idea. It's got to be tested you got to build molds. you got to get the hair and the eyes for it and build the thing and put it in a box, and then you got to market it and so on. But most importantly, the next step is ignition. If you can't manage your energy as a director, a CEO, an operations officer, anybody in a new venture that's out there, you're literally going to burn out. And this is the spiritual, emotional, and physical energies and mental energies that you're using to expend to actually manifest whatever idea it is that you have. Now, innovating it, the reason I have innovating next is because it's actually building it, saying, okay, I've I've incubated it, I've managed my energy, now I'm going to go innovate this, I'm going to take it to China, I'm going to take it to keep it in the States, I'm going to do whatever I am. But I'm going to find the resources to get this built, whatever it is, the widget, whatever. Now we can get 3D printers and we can put things on 3D printers and invent stuff through that, right? But then after we go from there, 
the hardest step in the whole eight-step cycle really is growing it and implementing it. How am I going to take what I have and get it to the public and the public be receptive of it? And I think this is frequently where a lot of businesses fail. People have ideas. They dump lots of money into it. They develop the prototypes. They then go out. And, you know, they get there and then they flop because they can't carry that message um, that this is a completed product and it's something you need. We see it happen all the time, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's the eight stage cycle. <clears throat> I love it. This is really uh, a clear, simple yet uh, an easily practical process that people can apply to their life, to their businesses, and uh, so that brings up another question, Greg. And uh, what I'm curious about is when you look back at your life up until now. You know, you've had uh, ups and downs and ebb and flow like we all have had. So what would you say was your breakthrough success moment in the sense, you know, that turning point or in other words, life was never the same again moment in your uh, professional success, career or uh, your business success career? Any Anything that comes to mind? Uh, of course. And I think, you know, people say breakthroughs because they think, okay, well, it has to be this thing that was this major epiphany. I think breakthroughs can occur as a result of major learning lessons in your life. And so I want to flop this on its head for a minute because all of my breakthroughs came as a result of what some people would call failures. Okay. Wannabe, that particular venture, Digital C, which was a software company I started, both of those ventures, a lot of people from the outside world would say, well, Greg, you didn't make a lot of money with those. Those were failures. Well, they weren't failures. You're either on the learning line or you're on the goal line, right? And I always have this uh, optimistic attitude that I'm on a learning line. I'm not just there to reach a goal, monetary goal. I'm, lear- I'm learning how things work and how things don't work. And I think if you take that attitude that you're going to have and can have as many failures, it's not, you know, these people um, – uh, Keenan, the guy who did the, uh, the, the, the two-wheel device, what am I thinking of? He said he was the 20-year overnight success, right? We hear that all the time. And it's true because you're tinkering, you're trying to build something, and the reality is the first iteration doesn't work, the second iteration doesn't work, and maybe you throw it all out altogether and you start all over. And it's all of those failures, Einstein with the light bulb, of which we know it wasn't just Einstein, there were other people involved, or not Einstein, Edison, uh, that those things virtually, Cal, were consistent, and they say 10,000 times, right? That's what mm-hmm. you always hear about, yeah. the, about the light bulb, because it's a great example. I mean, if you, if you look at some of Steve Jobs' accounts or Bill Gates' accounts or any of these people, I mean, back in the 90s, I was one of the first people that was working with Microsoft Office at the first version. And, you know, we would get these things that would break. Every time we'd turn it on, you know, you'd get another error code. Well, he was using us as testers, right? But he had thousands of testers out there. Now, there's a lot of people, and I tell people, don't get it to 100% perfection because if you do, if you try to go that way, you'll never get it out. Um, but the point is this. You asked me the question. I think my biggest turning points have been from some of my biggest 
uh, as people out there listening might say, failures to me, my biggest learning lessons in life. That's really where you learn. Absolutely. And I totally resonate with that because failure is who defines failure, first of all. And secondly, for me, the way I've internalized over the years, and it is it's only feedback to get to make you better at whatever uh, goal that you've set for yourself. And secondly, as you said, uh, you know, the example of uh, Edison with 1000 failed exper- experiments, you know, when he was asked, you know, how many times he's failed and things like that. He said, I just figured out a way what doesn't work. Right. And uh, <clears throat> that's one great way to look at it. And I think all these individual uh, setbacks that eventually leads to a massive uh, success down the road. I mean, I mean, if you look at absolutely, as you said, it's like the MVP model, minimal viable product model. You introduce into the market, you see what works, what doesn't work, you uh, you know, make those changes, reintroduce it, and continue with it. And at some point, you decide if it's even uh, feasible anymore to continue with this process. And you throw the entire project out of the window and start all over again. And and I, I, I like that approach and like the methodology that you're sharing here. Uh, that's really great. And so the other question that I have for you, and you mentioned your early mentor when you were in that sales career that made a significant difference uh, in your life. So the question that I have for you is, uh, who were your mentors growing up and whom did you look up to or wanted to emulate or fascinated you? Uh, any Anybody comes to mind? Anybody you want to give a shout out to? Oh, of course. Uh, my early mentors at Cal, first off, obviously, my mother and my father, uh, my uncle. Uh, and I write about him in the book. I mean, I don't think I could have been the person I am today uh, without... Uh, at least being exposed to and influenced by and it doesn't mean that they didn't have character flaws so let me put that aside a lot of people have character flaws but they still you can emulate what they're doing in other words those are tremendous um, role models for you growing up as a kid Um, so obviously my dad for taking the risk that he did obviously for my mom for taking the risks that she did um, in one way, she wasn't a risk taker at all, but in another way, she was probably one of the, the bigger risk takers around. Uh, I mean, I, I'm thinking about your mother traveling all the way to the United States for MDRT, right, and selling insurance. And, you know, I qualified for that for 22 years. So I know what it takes um, to do that. And think about it, raising a family on top of it. So that is an amazing role model. The other role models would be the gentleman that I just talked about, Grant Benning. He's 92 years old today. He's still alive. Uh, he literally was, I called him my second father. I write about him in the foreword of the book, and at least I give him acknowledgement um, that, you know, as somebody who taught me accountability, as somebody who taught me uh, sales, somebody who worked with me and was a mentor and looked over me. I think, you know, Joseph Campbell's story about the hero's journey, and there's all these archetypes, but us going out into the world, uh, venturing out on our own, whether it's after college or after high school or wherever it might be, and us getting kind of lost along the way and then having somebody come along and help us, we all can point to various mentors, various leaders, various influences that have had an impact but helped pick us up when we were down, when we didn't think we would make it, 
or helped us give us a new skill when we didn't have that skill or helped us uh, basically financially because they made us a loan um, because we couldn't pay our bills or whatever it might have been. These are the people, and actually those four people, my uncle, my mother, my dad, uh, and the first employer I ever had, true employer, which would have been Grant Benning. And I'll say this, after that first stint in the insurance thing, I, I need to mention this, and I was in my 20s. Uh, I think I was 26 or 28 when I quit Businessman's Assurance Company. Because I ventured out on my own and I never looked back again, Cal. I virtually have been doing my own thing where no one ever gave me a paycheck from the age of 28 to the age of 63. That is fascinating. And and it's kudos to you for really taking on this uh, incredible journey all the way uh, from selling soaps to, uh, you know, helping now businesses, uh, you know, find their purpose and their core competency. And and this is another question that I'm curious about. In 2003, you sold all your successful financial consulting company to go back to school. And that was the uh, University of Santa Monica to earn your MS in spiritual psychology. What was the drive behind that? Was there like a story that uh, could you share with us? Sure, I can certainly share it with you. So people talk about turning points in their lives and everybody I think experiences this if you live long enough. Um, you have some kind of, uh, can be what's called a tragedy. Um, again, I don't like to refer to it as a tragedy. You'll find that I would like your listeners to be thinking about mindset a little bit differently because of all the years I've done these uh, podcasts. And that is, again, that this was an opportunity for an awakening. So my eldest son was a senior at UCLA at the time. We get a call, and they said that, you know, uh, it, it, that it, at this point, we had realized something was wrong. We didn't know what. And we get a call from a doctor I sent him to in Long Beach, um, who was a client of mine at the time, an insurance client. And uh, he says, uh, your son's spleen is huge. His white blood count is um, uh, 50,000 or whatever, 5,000, whatever the number was. It was huge. It was way beyond whatever. And by the way, he's got leukemia. And that was a turning point for me to say, okay, um, you know, this journey is much more different than just you making money and going out on calling on people and whatever. So, the reason I went back to get the degree in spiritual psychology is because my heart was aching and I was longing to have a life that was different than what I had been living. And I knew if I had kept up with the same pace that I was at, um, the good chances were that, you know, I wasn't going to be alive either. So I literally sold the practice um, and started when we find out what he had and it was diagnosed and he got on a drug called Sprycell. At the time, it was Gleevec. Um, to this day, he's still on it. And I remember going down, and I tell this story a lot, to the pharmacist at UCLA. And actually, he could take a pill for this. And I was like, wow, that's pretty amazing. And the guy says, do you want the good news or do you want the bad news? And I said, well, give me the good news. And he says, well, the good news is your carrier, insurance carrier, is going to pay for all but $90 of these pills. I said, well, so what's the bad news? 
He said these pills are $14,900 a month, and he's going to need these for the rest of his life. And I sat there in pure astonishment, uh, just the fact, number one, that you can get chronic myelogenous leukemia, of which Kareem Abdul-Dabar has it. Um, quite a few people have this CML. It's called CML. And they've now gotten some drugs that will help people with it. And it's not that it's not life-threatening. It's just that they've been able to control it with, with a drug. So the turning point to go back to USM and get that degree was a result of my son's sickness. It was a result of my internal longing to say there's much more to life and permanence and impermanence uh, because I started to really see my own impermanence way back then. Um, and I've been pondering that concept for a long time uh, as to my impermanence. And at the same time I went back to USM, I also became a devotee of Self-Realization Fellowship and Paramahansa Yogananda. Wow. That's uh, really an incredible story. And then uh, was it the same time that you uh, also started your podcast or uh, yep. was Yeah. Yeah, my son who at the time said, "Dad, you've always loved, you know, personal growth. Um why don't I help you build the website?" And so he was a computer genius. Uh he went on to get a master's in computer science, then went to work for Adobe. Uh, is now working for a company called Madefire. Uh, he built my first three sites for me. Um, and so he built the, the, actually the, the site that's still up there, other than with a few modifications since then, two or three, um, was originally built by him. Wow. Um, but so that is, that's the story. And that's now been 13 years ago uh, that that website has been up and 660 interviews later. Now, that is incredible, and we'll include all of that in our show notes so that people can find out more about it and the book. And so the other question I have for you, having done this for 13 years, having interviewed so many authors and leaders and business leaders, and it just is an amazing uh, guest that you've had on the show. Now, when you look back at that journey in the podcast and the interviewing journey, what would you say were your top three things that a takeaway from having done all these interviews in terms of life's wisdom, if you could distill that in like three points. I know it's very difficult to do that, but <laughs> but if you could, if you had to do that, what would you say were your three takeaways from doing all those interviews? Um, one of them I would say, Cal, was with a gentleman by the name of Richard Barrett. I actually went to Richard's courses up in San Francisco and he wrote a book called Liberating the Corporate Soul. And, you know, I was involved in helping businesses change their internal cultures. And, you know, one of the things that I think is so important back then when people were talking about corporate soul, it was like, what? What are you talking about? Um, and even today, um, and what I would say is if people – one of the biggest learning lessons I had, if you're not doing what you're like doing, you like doing, then rethink it and try and figure out a way out of it. I don't care what it is because life is way too short. That would be one of the messages that I would say. Um, the second message that, that comes up for me is around our growth of our spirituality because I've done so many interviews with authors on spirituality and meditation. But one of the most poignant ones, I would say, and most listeners are going to know who he is, was with Ram Dass. 
Um, while he had a major stroke, and the interview is kind of difficult to uh, comprehend the whole thing, I think that the point that he brought to light for me was really around our impermanence. So, you know, the first one is like what you're doing. The second one is to know that you're just not going to be here forever. And the reality is it isn't that much time. Now, whether you believe in reincarnation or not, the point is you're trying to, within this incarnation, learn as much as possible um, and take that forward. Then when you reincarnate again, hopefully at some point you're not going to have to keep coming back again and again and again. And for some of your listeners, they're not going to even resonate with that message at all. But for many listeners, look, just take this away. Learn as much as you can. Apply it, right? And whether you believe you're going to reincarnate or not, it doesn't make any difference. The most important thing is that you're learning and you're teaching others, okay? And the third thing that I would say, you know, that comes up for me is, is truly I probably interviewed I don't know, out of the 660, I'm going to say 100 of them are on meditation. Um, and I would say that, you know, there's big, there's big talk. Actually, CBS Sunday Morning was just on this morning. It's where you and I are speaking. And the guy was commenting about, uh, well, there's no proof that meditation actually does anything. And I would, I would contradict him. I would say that even if you do or don't believe what meditation does, Actually having internal time for reflection is the most valuable thing you could do for yourself uh, to walk away from a meditation with either a new insight or an aha or absolutely nothing. Just the peace of mind that knowing you've connected with a higher power and that you took that 15, 30 minutes to do that. It is one of the biggest stress relievers in life. It's the one that releases the cognitive dissonance that I talked about before. It's the one that allows you to wake up in the morning and be grateful for every day that you have. And it's the one that makes you and allows you to be thankful for life. Otherwise, if you don't take that time for you to do that, you forget. And I think most importantly, our minds sometimes have a tendency to forget all the good things that we have in our life. No, that is brilliantly stated. And I like these three uh, takeaways and uh, aha moments there that you share. And specifically with related to meditation, I mean, a lot of people have this uh, notion that meditation is escaping reality. And that's so further away from the truth. It's really not about escapism, but it's really about raising your consciousness to a super consciousness state so that you can deal with reality with uh, being by being proactive. And then, of course, the scientific benefits are already uh, well uh, stated out there in terms of the impact it has on our health. And I, it's, it's just uh, one of the tools that, that today it's widely accepted, uh, even in the business world, that a lot of executives all the way from uh, professionals to executives and even political leaders uh, that uh, like the Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi, practices uh, yoga and meditation. So the evidence is uh, uh, pretty high in that regard. Now, the other thing I really, really liked about what you said as far as, uh, you know, rethinking the 
you're way out of your profession, your job, if it's not something that you like to do and you love to do because life is short and uh, there is, you know, there is no point in continuing doing what you're doing. Uh, of course, there are the, you know, the limitations of taking care of the family, the bills to be paid. But if you're not really doing it, I like what you said, rethink a strategy to get out of it. And finally, uh, you know, Ramdas, uh, I mean, impermanence is just, uh, that is the true nature of human being and of a human soul. And, you know, I like one of his quotes. It's about being present and being aware. It's like, be here now and right. be elsewhere later. <laughs> right. There's a, there's a sign on my desk that, uh, that, uh, Sen Delaney did. And, uh, actually, um, Larry Sen, if you guys look him up on LinkedIn, he's an amazing man. He's in his eighties now. But it's Be Here Now, and I have Ram Dass' book, Be Here Now. And I, like I said, I started this interview with the cognitive dissonance between the now and the future. And the only thing that you and I have or anybody has is the now. No matter how many times we say that, whether you're in disbelief of that or not, just realize that at some point the only now you'll have will be that last breath. And I think that most people would want to be at peace with their life, their relationships, their love that they've given to themselves and others at that time that that last breath occurs. Mm, I like that. What is your definition, Greg, having gone through the ebb and flow of life, having seen businesses succeed and businesses fail, not only for yourself, but the clients that you've coached over the years and helped them uh, you know, cause uh, breakthroughs in their own ways, what would you say is your definition of a successful life or a good life? Oh, that's a really, really interesting question. I think a successful life is a result of you doing what you love doing. And even if you're not doing what you love doing, then love doing what you're doing. Um, I also believe that a successful life is a result of having loving relationships of the people around you, family, friends that you support and that support you. A successful life, by some people's um, realities, can be can be measured in the amount of money. But I will say this: I mean, I've read so many books on minimalism, and there isn't one person out there that isn't practicing this minimalist lifestyle that has this um, challenge with having more. I think if there's a successful life isn't really about more. A successful life is about contentment with who you are, what you do, um, the relationships you have, and staying in the now. Now, for those who are measuring success as a result of how much money they make, or how many possessions they get, or the things they have, they will find that in those very challenging times, like when your son gets cancer, or your daughter gets cancer, or your wife gets cancer, or one of them dies, that all of the material stuff that you have accumulated has very little significance um, other than the relationships that you built. Mm, I like that. That's great. And and a follow-up question to that, if you could go back in time, let's say a hypothetical situation, we had a time machine, Greg, you were again back 
uh, at age 18. And if you were to go back and talk to your young self, what advice would you give him? Um, I don't be so worried. It'll all work out. Um, don't be so anxious. Don't have so much anxiety about the expectation of others. Um, stay present. Um, engage in the dialogue versus having a conversation. Really get deep in dialogue because that's where you learn. Um, try not to push people away when you think you're too busy um, to for them. Uh, the reality is is that they need you, um, but you, you frequently think that maybe I'm just too busy or you know, this is an annoyance or whatever, or if it is an annoyance, tell them, set up a schedule and say, Hey, I really do want to meet you, but I have another priority right now. And I'm willing to take that time, take time for others. Um, enjoy the opportunity to learn from people at all levels of consciousness. It doesn't matter that, that, that you're at the same level or a different level of consciousness or that you believe you're at a different level. Because the reality is it is all one universal mind. And there is something to be learned from everybody. That's great. We're going to switch gears here. And uh, Greg, we're going to get into some of the audience questions uh, related to business and entrepreneurship. And so my first question to you is, uh, tell us about, you know, what, what was the ignition, if you will, taking a leaf out of your book about writing this book and why now? Well, I, have, I had observed myself and so many other businesses, small businesses, small and medium-sized businesses, because it's primarily, primarily my clients, um, struggle. And the reason I called it hacking the gap is because, to me, hacking the gap is the shortest distance between point A and point B, or two points, with the least amount of resistance, the highest amount of personal and professional growth, while achieving your greatest potential. Now, that's a mouthful said, but when you break that sentence down, what you'll see is that if I can help people in that eight-stage cycle develop the behaviors and the mindset required to go through that, those cycles all the way from intuition to implementation – because really, that cycle applies to a lot of things, right? It, it applies to even the internal operations of your business, not just inventing a new product. Now, I primarily in the book am talking about people who are evolving something new. Because many of my clients are. What they don't realize is that they're reinventing themselves. And I say this in the book, that if you're inventing something, good chances are if you've come up with an idea, that you're reinventing yourself at the same time. And that's the biggest personal, professional growth thing that you could do. Um, so, you know, that's basically what I would say, is that you're going through your own personal and professional growth at the same time that you're trying to evolve and manifest. You know, when you're manifesting new products, new services, new things to the world, 
you're also manifesting with inside yourself a new you. I like that. And that reminds me of one of my friends, uh, Lenora Edwards, uh, who's a marketing uh, and business consultant. I mean, she has this uh, saying that goes something like, you know, you cannot have business development without personal and professional development. And uh, that is so right on the money there. The next question, Greg, is, uh, you know, most of my audience are uh, business owners and professionals and corporate executives. And one of the things that... uh, most of them struggle with is in introducing the concept of spirituality in this uh, fast-paced, uh, bottom-line-driven corporate and business world. And what would be your suggestion in terms of, you know, how do we develop that kind of receptivity for uh, within the corporate world to kind of like talk about spirituality and talk about, you know, tapping into the intuitive mind and, uh, you know, intuition and things like what you uh, talk about in your book about ignition, inspiration, insights. How can they bridge that gap for people who may not be receptive or may not be so evolved, if you will, or open to this concept? I think one of the first things, Cal, they can do is that, that when you when you're bringing in an open, transparent kind of architecture inside of a culture and a, a new business, um, you've got to allow people to be who they are. So you have to give them some autonomy. Um, as a matter of fact, you need to give them a lot of autonomy. Um, you need to include them. Uh, they, they need to be included in conversations and dialogues, no matter what level they are at. Because, no, look, everybody out there wants to make a, a contribution, all right? And at every level, somebody's making a contribution to get your company going. I don't even care if it's, if it's the janitor who's cleaning your floors. He's making a contribution, or she, whoever it is, to the well-being of your business, right? And so from a spiritual element, if you looked at your business and said, so, all right, there's four walls that these people walk into, no matter how it's divided on the inside, each of them has an energy, right? And you can choose to have it be a positive vibration that actually vibrates throughout the whole business, Or you can choose this top-down command and control, which you assert over many of the individuals, which in turn, we know, all the people have studied this, it doesn't do anything to move anything forward. As a matter of fact, it does a lot to move it backwards. So when you look at your balance sheet, and I tell people this, and you say, well, I have these machines, and I have this office building, and I've got all this equipment, and I've got all this stuff. Those are things that are all replaceable. The people that come through the door, right, are the people that bring and actually make up your culture. They're the people that are bringing their own spirituality, whatever it might be, to business. It needs to be expressed and it needs to work in unison and alignment for you to get that business operating on all cylinders. So, Spirituality in business is really quite simple. If you remove the command and control concept, if you provide more autonomy, if you give people opportunities for inclusion, and you really realize that on your balance sheet, your bottom line isn't your machines and your equipment. Your bottom line is your people. So treat 
your people first. That's the human capital. That's great. Well said. And and my only uh, take on that is really it's like you got to meet people where they are. And as you rightly pointed out, it's about giving people the freedom uh, instead of like imposing some new point of view on them. It's like really talking and speaking their language so that it resonates. It's really about uh, going back to the basic communication skills of building the rapport and speaking in a language that makes sense to them in terms of the bottom line and the profit margins and increasing sales and revenues and how can that improve as a result of uh, you know applying some of the spiritual principles and and uh, what is fascinating is over the last decade or so many companies have consciously evolved in in terms of uh, adopting these kind of spiritual principles uh, in making a difference and making a contribution uh, in the community. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's just been a, a few companies that uh, come to mind as one of those uh, financial investment uh, companies called BlackRock, I believe is the, uh, you know, I, I think, and there's so many companies out there that are now consciously adopting these principles. So it is definitely, there is a shift happening and people are open to the conversation. So, Greg, uh, the other question uh, for you is, what what would you say are the keys to having a successful business experience in the sense that where have you seen people normally uh, trip up when starting a business and going through this eight phases of the cycle? You mentioned implementation. And why is that? Why is implementation so challenging? Mm-hmm. Because, well, the, the, the challenge with implementation is usually at a point when the founder or the person who had the idea or concept frequently wants to depart. You know, it depends on the size of the company. But, you know, a, lo- a lot of times that it will be taken through this cycle and that's when their energy says, okay, I want to let go of this and I want to give it to my salespeople or I want to give it to my, you know, marketing team or I want to give it to whatever, right? And it and it happens in a lot of big companies. Now, in other companies, you see, you know, the CEO or chairman of the board um, and, and I'll point to Apple and, and uh, Steve Jobs, you know, he'd get up and he'd come to all these meetings and he'd show the iPhone and he'd show all the new inventions and he'd continue to drive, right, the company. And I'd say where a lot of companies kind of mess up is they they take this idea, they take it through all these departments, no matter how big you are, even if it's just yourself and you're a department of one, and then you go, oh, okay, great, I've created the widget or I've got this great idea that I want to implement and then they bring in somebody else to kind of carry the ball right and if they don't manage that if they don't manage it it really can become a train wreck and and they fall short of it um you know you have to go through this iterative process once you start this um what I call it, the convincing stage, the public, that the public either needs it or wants it or whatever it is that you have. You literally are out there every day talking to people, getting feedback about it. I'll use a real quick story. I'm working at the um, a place called The Basement at UCSD, University of San Diego. And 
these young students will come up with these ideas. Um, I'm working on one, right, called Embrace Health Tech right now. It's a little device that measures gait in old people, whether or not they're going to fall or not. And it sends this data, and so it tells physical therapists, okay, this person's gait is not right. They potentially are a fall risk, blah, blah, blah. So I have like 22 or 25 of these projects at UCSD, and I'm working on about three of them right now between SDSU and UCSD. And it's really great to see the excitement uh, in these young students' minds, and they're just so creative, and it's awesome to work with them. Um, (coughs) But when it comes to actually implementing, you know, they're spending all this time designing and tooling and fixing and whatever, and many of them have no clue about how to implement They absolutely have no idea how they're going to take this to market, right? Uh, They haven't thought about any of the strategies or the verticals or any of the things that are going to be required of them to knock on the doors, to open doors to people that are doing it. Okay, you've made this product. Well, now it's sitting there on the desk. What are you going to do with it? And so I tell people, you know, that phase is a tough one because it's tough for a lot of people. You know why? Because that's the phase that you get rejection. And the reality is, is you can't look at, like we said earlier in this podcast, you know, you you go through this 10,000 times to get the light bulb. Those are literally learning lessons and you just need to keep plotting out there. And if there's one thing I'd say, the muscle you need to build along the way is you need to build the, the muscle of being resilient, not to let resilience stop you, but your own muscle of resilience, right? How are you going to move to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, till you start getting yeses instead of noes? Because you're going to get plenty of noes. I don't care what it is, you're going to get noes. There's always going to be soothsayers out there that said, nah, it's a bad idea. Absolutely. And uh, no, that's uh, really well said. And uh, just I was going through some of the list of companies that are open to spirituality and principles like, you know, a None of them actually. Google, Apple, Yahoo, McKinsey, uh, they all offer meditation class, classes now on campus. And apparently uh, uh, even uh, companies like Rockport Shoes and uh, Patagonia, Avaya Telecommunications. So it's definitely now that the conversation is shifting where people are looking to adopt uh, some of these uh, phases, as Greg mentions in his book, of uh, Hacking the Gap. And uh, we'll include the links to the book in our show notes uh, for our listening to our audience, uh, all our listeners here. Uh, Moving on to the next section, uh, uh, Greg, it's called the Rapid Fire Round, and I just have a handful of questions for you. And this is where I'll ask you, uh, you know, questions and it's your first response that comes to your mind. So are you ready? I guess I am. Let's (laughs) shoot away. We'll see how ready I am. Okay. So the first question I have for you is, whose brain would you like to pick? Uh, Let's see. Believe it or not, he just passed away, Stephen Hawking. Mm, That's great. The second question is, if you could ask God one question, what would that be? I would ask it, why? Question. (laughs) <laughs> the five most important things in life, according to you. Can you repeat that? The five? Yeah, the five most important things in life, according to you. Family, 
love, compassion, persistence, resilience. Mm, like that. And if you could be successful in another profession besides business consulting and innovation and being a thought leader, what would you choose? I would choose acting. Nice. And one final question within the rapid fire round, and that is if you could have any message of your choice, Greg, on a billboard, what would that be? Breathe. (laughs) Exclamation mark. Breathe. (laughs) I like that. It's absolutely one of the critical aspects of living uh, a conscious life. It's about actually taking in, learning to breathe properly is absolutely vital. I used to do a, I used to do a a course with my son um, and it was called Never Mind the Noise, Thriving in a World of Ever-Increasing Complexity. And actually, that'll probably be the next book. And I think one of the things that we taught business people more than anything, uh, and it's still as relevant today as it was then, Cal, and that is, you know, we get so anxious, we forget to breathe, and then your pulse goes up and your anxiety levels go up. But if you really can learn to breathe properly and do deep breathing. I do yoga four times a week. I meditate almost every day. And I think the important element is to get in touch with the breath because it can do so much to both physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually bring you cent- get you centered. Absolutely. And uh, moving on to our final uh, section here, and I just got last three questions for you, Greg. And the first one is, what is your current or personal business passion project that you're working on? And what are you looking forward to in the next six months to a year from now? I'm actually working on a new uh, website called gregvoison.com. And I'm working on a DIY course, a do-it-yourself course for uh, hacking the gap, the eight elements that we talked about in this. And um, those are things that I'm going to complete. And it's been taking me a little bit longer than I expected, but those will be out in sometime in 2018. Excellent. And then we'll include all that information uh, in our show notes. The next question I have for you is, uh, what are three things you're grateful for in life, Greg? I'm grateful every morning I wake up and I put my feet on the floor and I get to look out and live where I live and live in the beauty that I live in. Um, I'm grateful for a family that's extremely supportive, uh, and I'll call it my immediate family, people that love me and care about me. And I'm grateful to work in an environment, um, my own environment that I've created, that gives me an opportunity for freedom to express myself um, the way that I'd like to express myself. Um, I'm not going to say without some levels of judgment, but that's okay. That is an opportunity for me to be free to express myself. <clears throat> that's very inspiring, uh, Greg. And I want to acknowledge you for a couple of things here. Firstly, for really encapsulating your life's wisdom 
in this beautifully uh, written book, which is Hacking the Gap, A Journey from Intuition to Innovation and Beyond. And what that provides us for business owners and uh, listeners of this podcast and people who are uh, who may uh, be following this concept of spirituality and business is a blueprint of how to apply uh, some of this wisdom in uh, lives. And so really thank you for that. And the secondly, it's it's the journey that you've been on, which is so inspiring, regardless of all the ebb and flow that you experienced. Uh, you stayed the course. Uh, you continue doing what you love to do, which is... Uh, which is really very inspiring for a lot of us. And then your practice of uh, meditation and yoga and, uh, you know, really uh, gives us the inspiration to continue with this uh, practice as well. So thank you so much for your contribution to the planet and uh, for just being who you are. Thank you, Cal, for doing this Wisdom of Friends show. And uh, I'm sure that we'll meet up again soon i know it's been a long time since we've seen each other but i'd love to come up to seattle and break some bread with you soon absolutely and i would love to do that and one final question and this is how we wrap up all our interviews and that is why do you think people should listen to the wisdom of friends well based on the questions that you have asked me and the insight that i hope people will gain as a result of my answers and advice and the stories that I told, um, I would hope that they could have at least one takeaway, maybe two or three takeaways. Um, And the reason people should listen to Wisdom of Friends is because Cal, number one, has a lot of great friends and authors and people that he knows. And two, um, he doesn't invoke very, very insightful questions uh, of of his guests. So definitely listen, enjoy it, learn, take notes, and practice it in your life. Thank you so much. I appreciate that feedback, Greg. And uh, for those of us who are listening, with that, we'll wrap it up. And if you like what you heard, please share. Don't be shy. Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Cal Aras. If you enjoyed today's show, head over to wisdomoffriends.net to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content. We hope you'll pass along our web address, wisdomoffriends.net, to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out our archive section on the website for previous episodes and subscribe on iTunes, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This has been a 7 Symphony's production. Join us next time for another edition of The Wisdom of Friends.